This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. I'm Piotr, and it's great to be here again with uh, another member of the Foreign Policy Institute from Johns Hopkins Science. Now, in the past three months or so of the conflict, there has been one country, particularly, albeit from maybe China with its um, benevolent neutrality. India has been a country that has been increasingly questioned, even coerced, and attempted to be incentivized by members of the international community to come round to taking a more clearer position on the Ukrainian conflict. India is the largest democracy in the world. And given that this conflict is largely, you could say, a symbolism of autocracy versus democracy, many wonder why the Indians haven't come out and been more concrete on where they stand on this, be it in the United Nations or just in bilateral relationships between, say, Russia, China and America. These kinds of topics and more is what we're going to be diving into uh, for this discussion on the Global Gambit podcast uh, with my special guest, uh, Professor Dan Markey. Uh, Professor Dan Markey is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute and a senior research professor uh, at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, which is where I myself attended my master's program. But particularly what makes this episode quite interesting is that we have a uh, a new report that was recently uh, released by the USIP, or the United States Institute for Peace. Uh, it was a senior study group report titled Enhancing Strategic Stability in Southern Asia. Uh, and if you want to find this report, that will be available in the show notes of this uh, podcast once it goes live uh, soon after this recording. Now, the report itself is very, very uh, comprehensive. And what I love most about it is that it doesn't just analyze and scrutinize the situation. It actually offers recommendations on how to improve the uh, strategical stability in the Southern uh, Asian region. Um, so first and foremost, um, Professor, I'm very glad uh, for you to be able to join us today. Keen to hear, you've been on a recent trip around India. Um, and, and I think that that's had a somewhat of an influence on this report. And generally, I think your, your perspective or perceptions or uh, ideas around India's uh, positioning on Ukraine uh, at the moment. So I was wondering if you could take us through a little bit about that, uh, and then we can dive into some more specific questions uh, over the next, uh, next part of the uh, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks. Uh, and it's great to be able to join you uh, today. This is this is all very new to me, uh, Clubhouse, so uh, and fun so far. So far, so good. I, I was in India a few weeks ago. I was there for a big conference on international affairs. It's called the Ricina Dialogue. It's it's basically put on by a think tank, uh, ORF, that works together with the Ministry of external affairs. And um, it invites people from around the world. And this year it was really notable because there were so many Europeans in attendance and so many on panels. And as a consequence, uh, or at least partially as a consequence, there were a lot of conversation about Ukraine. Most of the conversation actually asked questions that were quite similar to the one that you just raised, which is, you know, India is a huge 
democracy. Uh, it prides itself on democracy at home. Uh, one would think that it would look at the world perhaps through a, a lens like many of us in the United States do, see itself as a uh, Ukraine as a fellow democracy and see Russia's aggression as a clear instance of autocracies attempting to you know, destroy a, a free and, and democratic power. So it's odd that, that India tends not to frame in these terms, if you look at it that way. I mean, one of the things that, that was so clear from this visit and from a lot of research that I've done in the past is that you know, India is proud of its own democratic tradition at home. And uh, when Indians go out to vote, um, there are more of them than any other democracy in the world. And it's really quite spectacular. Not only do they have national elections, but they have rolling series of, of state level elections that seem to constantly keep the country in, in sort of a, a state of, of uh, political attention. So it's exciting. And, and it's a big part of what makes India, India. Um, but that doesn't mean that they actually see themselves as being crusaders for democracy elsewhere. They don't approach it with a, a kind of a, a liberal world order perspective in the same way that I think a lot of Europeans do, certainly a lot of Americans do, in seeing that an attack on one democracy might be an attack on others. Um, instead, they they again, they proudly defend themselves and their way of doing things, but they're also relatively more content to let other countries govern themselves the way that they want. And frequently, they're inclined to stay out of other countries' business. In that way, uh, sometimes they look a little bit more like you might say like China, uh, which where where they frequently talk about non-interference in the sovereign affairs of other states. Uh, whether or not they actually practice that is a different story, but uh, certainly India is not inclined to get on a soapbox and tell the rest of the world how to run themselves. So that's a part of what's going on here. Then that's a, got a fairly long tradition. Helps to explain some of India's reaction to the Russian invasion. But there are some other, you know, really critical kind of near term and longer term interests, both um, having to do with people and with uh, India's defenses. So on the on the people side, you know, when Ukraine was initially attacked, there were a lot of Indian uh, students in Ukraine. And there was a sense, at least among Indian diplomats, that uh, their first order of business was to get those Indians to safety. And they certainly didn't want to do anything or say anything that would so upset Russia that it might make that project more difficult. And I think they were hoping that by um, by staying on the fence or relatively more neutral in this conflict, certainly by their votes at the UN, Russia would see that as a positive and, and India would um, benefit uh, to get, I think it was something like 20,000 students out. At the same time, there's a, a deeper concern that Indians have, and I think this is a, a persistent one, because uh, much of their defense equipment is purchased from Russia. And of course, this has a decades-long history to it. Certainly during the Cold War, India, although non-aligned, often tended to buy some of its top-line military equipment, things like tanks, fighter jets, and artillery, and many other things as well from the Soviet Union, and even after the Soviet Union collapsed, continued to buy from Russia. You know, this is something that's gradually shifting. Uh, India is attempting to both diversify its supply of equipment to other suppliers like the United States, like the French, the Israelis, and others, um, and also to build things at home. 
um, to actually make India a better manufacturer of its own defense equipment. But that's a decades-long project, and Indian leaders appreciate that and I think are particularly nervous about, again, doing taking steps publicly that would get them on the wrong side of Russia. And that's made especially more acute, and I'll wrap up with this, by the fact that over the past several years, India has gone toe-to-toe increasingly with China over uh, their land border. Uh, they They don't agree on where exactly that border is. And in the summer of 2020, Uh, They actually came to blows along that border. Soldiers on both sides were killed. Uh, India is worried that if it ends up in in a hot conflict with China along the border, a lot of the equipment that it uses comes from Russia. And so resupply... Uh, of everything from basic ammunition to maintenance of various um, platforms would be much more difficult, the Indians fear, um, if they get crosswise with Russia. And then the last point would be they don't want Russia and China to get ever closer in their relationship. So some Indians believe that by keeping a door open to Russia, they may uh, make that less likely. So that's kind of the Indian thinking on a lot of this. It's certainly not what we'd like to hear in the United States and People are, as you said, working hard to push India off its hedged position of neutrality, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. The strategical autonomy that India has, well, I think just had as its prevailing grand strategy or narrative or approach to things in the international system is, it's one of the most fascinating things for me as a bit of an IR nerd uh, to, to, to look at because China has its own approach to sort of neutrality in quotation marks versus the Indians, which is very different. And just bringing in the report, um, enhancing strategical um, stability in Southern Asia, one of the things that I noted was this um, cascading security dilemma. Sort of, I think, something that you hinted a bit, a little bit there. You know, you've got the, well, long-standing issues between Pakistan and India. We've got the the heightening tensions between the um, the Indians and the Chinese after the skirmishes of, of 2020. Uh, we've obviously had the developments in Afghanistan, which, well, it's not directly, so we say, in southern Asia still have obviously spillover effects uh, for the rest of the region. And then, uh, and in the context of Ukraine, is the relationship of Taiwan. Um, and sort of that people are quite interested about how India feels about the issues of if China were to launch some kind of offensive against Taiwan being inspired by the events in Ukraine. So there's a lot of chess pieces moving around sporadically and, and unpredictably, uh, which I think makes for uh, why so much fascination is carried around uh, the, the Indian um, file. But the, the specific point I wanted to, to raise with you is, you know, in the past five, six weeks, uh, perhaps even whilst you were in India, we saw such a flurry of diplomatic activity, shuttle diplomacy almost, um, of leaders from uh, the UK, from Germany, from the United States, many, you know, Western powers, but also non-Western powers sort of going to India to try and garner some kind of response from India or to, to make their position clearer. Why, why hasn't that worked? And, and as a sub, uh, a second sub question to that is, why was it that Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, was the one that actually was able to garner a, a meeting directly with Modi, whilst none of the, his counterparts, Western foreign minister counterparts, were able to do so? Yeah, great, great series of questions. Look, I think um, I did want to pick up on some of your observations before answering the specific question you raised. 
Because you, you're right on. You said there are a lot of moving chess pieces on the board here, and and that's a big part of this this report that uh, the United States Institute of Peace released. That's a big part of what it's arguing is that the complexity and and some of the changes in the nature of the relationships between the major players on the board. And in this report, we're really looking at India, China, and Pakistan, and to a lesser extent, the United States. But even the changes there um, are happening uh, relatively rapidly, in some ways, uh, unpredictably, and lead to, or at least should lead US policymakers to, to rethink things they thought they knew about how crises might be managed, um, and how conflicts might break out. So, you know, and it's, of course, the war in Ukraine has sort of upended a lot of things we thought we knew about uh, the world. Uh, maybe it's confirmed some others, uh, but it's definitely created problems. Uh, and it's certainly created problems for India. You mentioned strategic autonomy. Look, India is an enormous country. It's a country with, I think, civilizational level ambitions uh, over the long run. That is, it doesn't see itself as a minor player on the world stage. It's a country that wants to be able to make decisions for itself and above all, doesn't want to be pushed around and told what to do or be pigeonholed as a junior partner to anyone. And so that comes together in a sense of strategic autonomy that that it gets to make its decisions. I would say since about the end of the Cold War, India has been in a fantastic spot because as it looked out into the world, it didn't really have to make either or decisions about relations with just about any country. So it could uh, attempt to improve relations with the United States, Western Europe, at the same time that it also had good and increasingly good relations, even with China and Russia and other countries that the United States clearly doesn't get along with, like Iran. So uh, India could have it all until a few years ago, as its relationship with China deteriorated, um, as the U.S.-China relationship deteriorated, and now increasingly as the U.S.-Russia and Russia's relations with many other countries as well has deteriorated. That has put India more into the hot seat. It is harder and harder to India for India to get along with everyone strategic autonomy or no. Um, and that leads to this shuttle diplomacy story that you were identifying, which is lots and lots of leaders, one after the next, showing up in New Delhi uh, in the months after um, February 24th to basically plead their cases uh, with New Delhi and to take the temperature of the Indian government to see where they actually stood on the issues. And Lavrov was there clearly to try to make sure that India didn't budge off of its basic position in the UN of neutrality and not voting against Russia, if not supporting Russia, at least not voting against it. U.S. officials were there uh, to probe to see whether they might push India uh, in different directions. And more than push, I think the Biden administration is eager to try to court India, try to offer it incentives to shift its behavior. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but just the other day, there were stories coming out uh, Bloomberg released of uh, an attempt by by the U.S. government, rumored, uh, not yet confirmed, of an offer of some, something like $500 million to incentivize India to begin to buy equipment, and military equipment, instead of from, from the Russians, to try to find alternatives, particularly from the United States. And that's the kind of thing, this is a, a, a strategic opportunity, at least from the U.S. perspective, to accelerate India's shift away from Russian equipment 
and move to the United States uh, and say French, Israeli, and other equipment. Um, but you're also right that you know Lavrov got some special treatment, or at least more senior level treatment than many of the other visitors. Part of the answer is a, actually a really simple one. Um, Indians are very protocol sensitive, and they tend to keep the official level meetings at equal levels of seniority. So if you're not a head of state, you don't get to see the head of state. If you're a foreign minister, you may get a drop in by the head of state. And so that, I think, explains a lot of choices that have been made. Um, but one of the more interesting ones that was that Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, was also in town and reportedly got more of a cold shoulder, not much of a welcome at the airport, uh, and so on. There are rumors that that uh, Prime Minister Modi actually did drop in, stop by and see him, but those are unconfirmed. And the more official message was that he didn't see him, and he pointedly didn't see him to send a message that the China-India relationship was not strong. Um, mostly U.S. visits have been at equal levels, and we have actually seen a series of virtual uh, conversations and and. Uh, there will be upcoming meetings uh, in the so-called Quad, the India, uh, U.S., Japan, Australia meetings upcoming in Tokyo that will feature uh, senior summit level meetings. Um, so I haven't seen much of a you know Indian cold shoulder to the U.S. If anything, I think there's been a, a certain warmth there at the most senior levels uh, that suggests that um, both sides basically understand where they are uh, standing on Ukraine, even if they disagree. Great. Thank you for that, uh, Professor. Yes. And um, as always, this room is being, as you mentioned, um, this time coming to you from Clubhouse and the Ukraine Sit-Rep Room. Uh, and in the second half of the podcast, we will be having some live interactive audience participation in the Q&A. Just to expand a little bit more on this, um, in the shuttle diplomacy, I want to I wanna go through sort of the relationship of India to three specific countries um, in the context of Ukraine, uh, as, as, as reasonably possible, of course. But um, Firstly, it's the Indian-Russian relationship. Very, very interesting for me, being half Russian, how Russia has managed to play, um, you know, having a, a very good relationship with the Indians, but also had a decent one with the Pakistanis. Um, I think it was the pipeline that they established in 2015. Um, and generally sort of there was a, there was quite a warm, maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but there was a sort of a, a certain degree of mutual respect from Imran Khan or the, or the previous uh, leader of Imran Khan in, uh, in Moscow and vice versa. But, but the Indians haven't felt too antagonized by that. Uh, and so I'm just wondering if you could take us through a little bit the Indian Russian relationship specifically and, 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 and build on what you were touching upon, uh, with Sergei Lavrov and the meeting, um, meetings that they've had as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I said, the you know the Indian-Russian relationship goes back decades, um, and for a lot of Indian strategists, I would say less so within the current Modi government, but certainly within other governments, um, Russia was seen as a, a very dependable, long-term partner, particularly on the defense side. More or less, uh, this gets a little more controversial, but more or less, a country that saw the world in ways that were uh, welcomed in New Delhi. Uh, and, and in particular, you know, Russia talks about a multipolar world uh, and the emergence of a multipolar world. And, and that is uh, mainly about not having a world dominated by the United States and, or, and its Western partners. Um, India and many Indians, uh, they, they tend to like this multipolar world concept as well. They may not uh, necessarily like the way that Russia has over many years now tried to, in a, in a way, uh, upend or even blow up 
uh, the liberal world order or the post-war world order. They haven't really appreciated all of that, but at the same time, they like the idea that you know, that countries, big countries like India should be able to make independent choices. And you talked about strategic autonomy before, and this is a part of that. And so where Russia has talked about um, a multipolar world, China has also picked up this multipolar world message, um, making the world safe for different countries to effectively go their own way and not be dominated by, uh, again, a U.S.-led world order. So you know, that's a part of what drives India to see Russia, at least some Indians, to see Russia in positive terms. Uh, but the other big thing that's going on here, I was getting at before, is that, you know, it's really important to India that Russia and China not be closely aligned. And the more that they see Russia's conflict with the United States and Western Europe pushing it into the arms uh, of China as a junior partner to China, uh, the more worried India gets because they're looking at China as potentially a long-term and increasingly hostile competitor right along their border. And if you think about the map, as they look north and west, uh, they also have other players like Pakistan. And they certainly don't want to find uh, the Russian the Russians end up on a, on a similar side as well. Uh, that, that looks really dangerous to India. So they'd like to try to keep that multipolar world going, which inc- includes keeping Russia and China uh, as far apart as possible. So that's part of another part of why you know they're open to a main, a maintaining a close relationship with Russia. I guess the last point I'd make on this is I already talked about the defense ties that they've had with Russia, but that really shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, and the, one of the pieces that the, uh, is important, particularly on the nuclear front, is that as India has been building out its nuclear capabilities, it's wanted to pursue a triad uh, that is um, air, land, and sea-based nuclear assets. Well, its sea-based nuclear assets are, are nuclear submarines, um, which are basically uh, from Russia. And so when you think about, as India thinks about its, its place in the region and the world and maintaining that and feeling safe and secure, having a, a second strike capable nuclear force, that is, if they get attacked, they'll, they'll always have something in reserve. Their nuclear submarines are a piece of that. Um, let me just quickly say, you're, you're right, too, that Russia has tried to cultivate over the past decade or so better ties with Pakistan. And that Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan, was in Moscow at the basically at the time of the invasion. Uh, it looked terrible. Uh, it was bad optics uh, for Pakistan, certainly for Pakistan's relations with just about any country in the world other than Russia. It looked awful. It was, I think, broadly a, a coincidence of an attempt to bring together energy deals uh, with Moscow and, and the timing of them brought Imran Khan there at, at the same time as the war began. But India has not said a lot about this. It's irked by it. It's concerned about the prospect of a, of a Russia, Pakistan, China convergence of interests on India's borders as, as all potentially increasingly hostile powers. That worries India. So that too reinforces the need you know, for New Delhi to have some kind of a continuing positive relationship with Moscow. Uh, oh, and last, last point I would say is while I was in India, I definitely heard a lot of Indians saying, you know, no matter what happens in this war, Russia is still going to be a nuclear power. Russia is still going to be a, a pillar of the international system. Whatever that system is, Russia will have a say in it. Uh, we don't need to have a bad relationship with 
whatever, even a weakened Russia is still going to be um, an important part of the international system. So India recognizes that um, and doesn't really see the world in the same way as I tend to hear here in Washington, which is, you know, Russia through this war has the potential to have thrown itself off a cliff and will maybe uh, take years and years to recover from it and has diminished itself so, so much that it won't be a relevant uh, international player going forward. So India, I think, sees Russia in very different terms than we do. Yes, I, I 100% agree with you on that last one. I, I think it's the, as I said before, uh, in discussions in the SITREP room, yes. but also in other podcasts, I, I think there's a certain degree of hubris that the West has had. And again, and that's another thing in itself, I don't want to use the term West too much, because I find in this con- conf- conflict and context, it's it's very misleading. What do we mean by the West? I mainly think of it as a distinguishment between continental Europe and, shall we say, the Anglo-Saxon countries. I'm beginning to make that distinction more and more. And I think that there's this hubris, this disconnect in terms of the way that the West sees Russia and other countries see Russia and, and exactly what they want to get out of it in terms of relationships, trade and, and so on. But so we've covered the um, Indian Russo relations, but I'm very curious to hear a little bit more on the U.S., Indian relations. Um, one of the points that I, I took of note in the report is that, you know, there's an emphasis that US has a limited capacity to influence the behavior of not just India, but all the other nuclear armed states in the region, uh, and that they need to balance competing strategical priorities um, whilst also deterring aggression uh, and, and av- taking care to avoid actions that could contribute to a regional arms rate, race or instability, right? That being said, that the US has played quite a strong role in regional crisis prevention and mitigation. So what's your overall take of US-Indian relations? Um, as far as I can tell, and please do uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the US has been quite a sort of, you know, trying to f- be like, oh, yes, India, we're very keen to, to get close with you. And the Indians are like, no, we'll keep you at arm's length, buddy. How do you see that relationship evolving now? Uh, do we do we think that the the two are going to become closer, or, or, or there's not really a further integration of relations that we can see, uh, unless the two form a, a formal sort of declaration of alliance, so to speak, or they'll keep it as more broadly a strategic partnership? Yeah, this this is a huge question that's been, uh, in a sense, bedeviling U.S. policymakers for. No, for almost almost twenty years now, as you know, at the basically starting at the tail end of the the Bill Clinton administration, and then certainly into the George W. Bush administration, a number of U.S. policymakers started to believe that India should be a pillar in the broader strategy to deal with or manage the rise of China in Asia, and that only India, being as enormous as it is with the potential that it has in so many different ways, but uh, including economic, but also its uh, sort of geostrategic location on the Indian Ocean. Only India, you know, could give the United States and its other allies a kind of a, a heft or a weight in Asia that would begin to match uh, the Chinese over time as China grows. And and so successive, you know, starting again back in the, at the very end of the Cold War and then, uh, or sorry, the early cold post-Cold War period and then uh, throughout after 9-11 uh, into the Obama administration and through the Trump administration, now into the Biden administration, all of them across different parties have really as you put it, tried to be boosters of the India relationship. And there's a kind of a, a bet that's a strategic bet that's been made on India 
that um, if the United States puts enough energy into this relationship, into this partnership, that eventually it'll pay off. I think there have been some over the years in Washington who thought that eventually we could nudge the Indians towards something that looked like a, a formal alliance. I think more and more, as, as more uh, American policymakers get more familiar with India, they realize that that's probably a bridge too far, that, that India is not eager for anything formal in that way, but that at the same time, that, that there are a lot of opportunities for this so-called strategic partnership. And again, I think you, you nailed it uh, when you said that a lot of uh, the progress in that strategic partnership has been the consequence of India, of, sorry, of China's action, of Chinese aggression against India, of India feeling more and more insecure along China's borders and feeling like as a, as a huge neighbor, India needs what in political science we'd call a, sort of a, uh, an external balance you know, India can't in itself build its economy or its military or its political influence sufficiently to to balance China. It needs external partners one way or another uh, to enable it to do so. And, and that the United States is the natural external partner. But the thing is, India at the same time still wants to, I would say, keep the United States, you, you said at arm's length, I would say Maybe um, there's some of that, but also to keep us focused on the China problem and particularly the China problem uh, in the security realm, um, but not necessarily line up behind the United States on just about everything else uh, or anything else where the U.S. and India may not naturally uh, overlap in terms of their interests. Um, so Ukraine, we've already talked about. That's an example of that. Climate change or trade or or other issues, uh, even in the, in the tech realm, control over data, data localization issues and so on. Um, India isn't exactly where the United States would want it to be or where the United States is. Uh, and it's not likely to get there. So there are some pretty, I would say, fundamental barriers between New Delhi and Washington, not all of which can be erased by their mutual suspicion and perhaps wariness and increasing competition with China. Um, but some of them will be. And that's that's what I think we're beginning to see more and more, especially since 2020. Uh, we really, you know, watching as India and China, you know, actually drew blood along their borders uh, and then brought tens of thousands of forces up to the borders, really eyeball to eyeball, uh, tanks in the in the high Himalayan plains, plateaus. Uh, and you, over the past decade or so, we've seen other flashpoints or potential flashpoints between them. Um, we can't underestimate how this has changed attitudes in India about China and then and then as a consequence has made them more open to certain types of cooperation with us. Fascinating. Um this is uh this is very much my element, this the great power politics and the uh the overarching strategical and self interests of great powers states amongst one another. And you know, when I started up this string of questions, I wanted to cover the main three and what some analysts have called sort of the uneasy triangle or strategic triangle. So we've covered the Indian relationship to Russia, to the US. And I want to, if, if there is anything else you'd like to add on, on the Sino-Indian relationship, because for me, what's interesting is, you know, you think of the, these three countries as the main powers in the modern system, Russia, China, and the United States. But like, because they're on the, uh, the, 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 the Security Council, they're all nuclear states, but so is India. And India is by far the most, you know, most 
prevalent country in terms of its growing population, its growing uh, economic ambitions, and so on and so forth. So for me, it's very strange that they're not often enough cited uh, in great power strategy. And so as an add-on to the final question of, could you take us through a little bit more US-Indian-Sino um, relations? Why is India not often uh, included as much in the sort of greater power politics narrative? And, and do you think that that will change? Um, we had Gideon Rose on, and uh, he was taking us through a little bit the world order and the, the shift of multipolarity to potentially bipolarity. I personally think that the international system is restructuring in such a way that you know we're entering a new phase of less multipolarity just because it's inherently unstable. Um, I mean, that's a, a discussion perhaps we can have later on, but uh, I'd just love to hear your take a little bit more on the you know, Indian relations and um, and why India isn't more often you know, involved in these discussions more broadly. Yeah, yeah. Great questions. I, you know, I think, and I, and I like the broader conversation about this potential shift away from a multipolar world that seemed to be shaping up into something that looks a little more bipolar, but, but just sticking to the the China-India story and why India isn't always, say, grouped with China or grouped with the other major powers. Um, there are a lot of good answers to this. Part of it is that India's economy, though it has certainly been growing rapidly, is still um, a pygmy compared to the Chinese economy or, or that of the United States, of course, faces a, a number of really important structural barriers to being changed into an economy that would really grow at the pace that would need to in order to to do anything like catching up. So if you look at the past uh, decade plus, uh, India's economy has been growing, but not fast enough to close the gap. And in a number of ways, the concern, certainly for Indian strategists and for some U.S. strategists who, who perceive India as a natural partner, if not ally, the concern is that you know, India will grow, but China will continue to grow. And um, because China is always so, already so far ahead, uh, the gap will never really be narrowed. You know, there's a, there's a really good book uh, that I've read recently on uh, India versus China, Why They Will Not Be Friends or something like this um, by an Indian professor, Kanti Bajpai. And, you know, he, he concludes the book by suggesting that in order for India to, to seriously compete with China over the long term, uh, it would need to undergo what he describes as civilizational level change. You know, that there are so many aspects to the way Indian society works or doesn't work, the way the economy works or doesn't work, the way the state uh, would need to be strengthened, uh, the way that its institutions, including its military, but not limited to that, would need to be built out and reformed. So many of these different things would all have to happen uh, in relatively short order. In a sense, what he's saying is he doesn't see it. Uh, he doesn't see it happening. And that helps to explain why India has been, in a sense, shunted aside from international leadership in a way that, you know, if you just simply look at its population and, uh, and certain other aspects of its, of its society, you'd expect it to be front and center. So anyway, bottom line, I think it's changing, but not as rapidly uh, or as decisively as um, many would have maybe hoped or anticipated, say, if they had looked at India 20 years ago. Now, coming back to the broader question, you know, if, if the world is increasingly uh, going to be defined by a global geopolitical competition that puts the U.S. on one side and its partners on that side, as well as, and, and then China on the other, and possibly Russia increasingly following behind 
uh, China, that puts India in, as I said before, a really tough bind, a bind that it doesn't want to be in because it would much prefer not to have to make choices between the United States and its partners and the Russians and Chinese and their partners. But if it did have to choose, it's pretty clear, at least to me, um, that it grudgingly would find itself more on the side of the United States. And that's only because of um, its sense of economic opportunity. I think assiduous cultivation of that relationship uh, by the United States and its sense of security threat when it looks to China. And those kinds of things would gradually push India over the edge. But it definitely doesn't want to get there. It's not going to move there quickly. Uh, and it may be with only fits and starts. Uh, and it may never happen. I mean, we may, we may still be in a, a longer term world that is a lot messier than, than one that you would say is truly bipolar. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for that um, expansive set of responses to my rather sort of flurry of different questions, sort of string of interrelated questions, I guess. So moving from there, I want to ask a little bit more specifically about Modi himself, uh, because as I've seen in recent polling, you know, world leaders don't tend to do very well uh, in times of energy and food crises. But um, as far as I can tell, President Modi, who's been in power for what, almost a decade at this point, uh, and, and has made some controversial decisions among certain groups, shall we say, uh, is still polling incredibly high, uh, above 75%, I think, of uh, Indians um, asked uh, are in favor or, or sort of support him more than they don't. So I'm just curious to hear from you a little bit. What element do you think does the individual leadership of India have in its stance towards not just Ukraine, but more broadly in its foreign policy? Because as I've said in other discussions before, we can look at a bit of a disconnect between individual leaders their personal relationships with other leaders uh, and, and, and the uh, official foreign policy. So, for example, President Xi and President Putin, for our listeners, are quite close. They, they, they tend to have a bit of a bromance, even some, uh, some magazines and uh, news outlets have, have called it. But that isn't necessarily reflected in the official foreign policy of, say, China. Uh, concerning, say, Taiwan or aspirations for the country's strategical interests. So just uh, just with that context there, Professor, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal perspective uh, and opinion of President Modi and, and what you think about that, given Biden and uh, and Putin and whoever else you'd like to, to raise. Absolutely. Yeah, Modi is a fascinating character um, and and looms over just about every aspect of, of Indian politics today. He is the, he is the dominant by far the dominant politician. There is nobody else who comes even close. You know, sitting here in Washington, D.C., I don't know that we would have anticipated this. Uh, if we go back to the years before he was actually uh, leading his party, the, the BJP, uh, into elections, uh, you know, he was he was a controversial figure. Back as chief minister, he had been accused of, of an involvement in, in communal violence, and he was basically refused entry into the United States because of that. So when he came into power as prime minister of India, uh, there were a lot of questions about whether uh, the U.S. and India would would have a rough patch because of his uh, his own personal status. And because of his own actions in the past, and because, of course, he's associated with this party, which has a hardline Hindu nationalist component to it, at least for the first few years, uh, there was a kind of a remarkable and rapid 
improvement in, and he was rehabilitated in, in a sense with the U.S. government. Um, he quickly got meetings with the Obama administration. You know, there were really no questions about whether the U.S. would would hold him uh, accountable for past wrongs. To the contrary, they they quif- quickly moved on and reflect or, or believed that. And what was important was, again, the strategic partnership with India, not the relationship with any single individual. That persists to this day. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's any particular love between, say, President Biden and, and uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, but Biden greets him warmly. Uh, they engage with one another in a very positive way whenever they are seen in public. Modi, though, has that same uh, approach to his relations with just about every other world leader when he actually sees them in public, and you know, there are some that he's not seeing right now, like Xi Jinping, he refuses to see. When he sees the others, though, he's he's uh, very friendly. Uh, you mentioned bromance before between Xi and, and Putin. Uh, I'd say Modi tries to cultivate a bromance with just about every leader uh, that he meets on the world stage. Um, so that's kind of fascinating to watch. Now, you know, in a way, that's consistent with what I described as India's intention to try to build positive relations in just about every direction, say, you might call it a multi-vector, or they call it strategic autonomy approach to the world, where they want to get along with everyone and see what they can get from everyone. And so Modi's been the, the face of that. The problem, of course, is that, you know, you're right, he's popular at home, but also very controversial. And the nature of his popularity, uh, he's polarizing, you know, like many populists uh, and nationalists, and those who are associated with, you know, in his case, communal identity, that is Hinduism, uh, Hindu nationalism, uh, that means that there are some within India who are highly critical of him and see him as um, taking paths in his politics of unifying against uh, other segments of the Indian population of minorities, particularly Muslims, but others as well. Um, and that that could be very dangerous for the direction of, of India, uh, could rip it apart, uh, could turn it from a secular, pluralistic democracy into something that was more majoritarian, that privileged certain groups over others, heightened or exacerbated the, the underlying tensions between these communities. So that all that is very worrisome. And the last point I would make is that there have also been some concerns about the way that the Modi government has managed its relations with Indian press, with the media, um, with academics, um, with opposition figures, uh, with advocates, with non-governmental organizations, all of which has been described as increasingly less democratic and less open to debate um, and differences. And and because of that, one has to take some of this uh, popularity with a grain of salt. There are questions about just what's acceptable or allowed in terms of free speech in India today is very different from what you might have thought, say, 10 years ago. And um, I wouldn't say it's it's gotten all the way to a, an illiberal or autocratic regime, but it's definitely less free and open for debate and pluralism uh, than it used to be. And if these patterns persist, you know, we'll, we'll have some serious questions about India's trajectory uh, internationally. Um, and I will say, I, I wrote, I've written about this. I wrote an article that came out in a in an academic journal, a policy academic journal, um, Asia Policy in January, about the broader implications. If India were to become increasingly illiberal and undemocratic, what would that mean um, for its relationship with us and the rest of the world? So um, it's something that I'm concerned about. I share those sentiments. I'm not a expert on 
domestic Indian politics, but the, shall we say, signs, minor signs of this is something I have noticed. We talk often a lot about the democratic spectrum, so to speak, and on the left side you have, you know, fully 100% democracies like, I don't know, New Zealand, the Nordic states, then you have like flawed democracies, illiberal democracies, hybrid regimes like Turkey, and then autocratic ones, and then totalitarian ones. That's sort of how I put you could, uh, those are the sort of categories I would say I try and put countries. Obviously, it's an ebb and flow thing. It's not like you can directly say, well, it's a static thing. It's, it's a very organic and, and, um, live dynamic sort of countries because it's people. Um, but, uh, yes, I agree. It's certainly, there's been signs emerging of sort of encroachment on, on, on full scale democratic values. Um, the last question I want to yeah, raise. If I, if I could just, if I could just add a point there, I would yeah. say it's, you know, it's really important as we think about this, and, you know, this gets to some of the teaching that I've done um, at Johns Hopkins at SICE, you know, I try to make some distinctions. Now, there's democracy as process, uh, and then there's what I would describe as, and others, uh, as as liberalism as a, as a worldview or as an underlying motivator for explaining the way that a society, say, like the United States, governs itself. And even democracies, you know, say that you could imagine two democracies that practice elections in, in virtually identical ways, have similar institutional structures and so on, but one could be far more liberal uh, than the other. And that relates to the defense of, of minority rights, of free speech, of other practices and expectations, both within the society in terms of how you treat individuals or, or groups, minorities, and so on, and also expectations about how you see the world outside your country. And, you know, as I look at India, I think that it's a big, messy democracy that practices a lot of the features that really uh, continue to be very democratic. Um, and even Modi's party continues to win, but also to lose elections um, within that democracy. But India's commitment to liberalism, at least the version of it that you know, I'd say is closer to the U.S. version or the British version. That's always been questionable. And I don't mean this as a criticism. I mean to say that India has different traditions, a different political culture, a different culture writ large, a different sense of itself and what makes India work. And um, not all of that fits neatly within this kind of, um, again, very Western uh, philosophy of, of liberalism. Uh, rooted in individual freedoms. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helps to explain, you know, say why India doesn't naturally look out into the world, see Ukraine being attacked by Russia and say, you know, we ought to do something about this. It doesn't flow naturally from, I think, within the Indian political culture, uh, even though it's a democracy, because I don't think it's a, it's a terribly liberal democracy. This, um, should we say, tone deafness that the, again, members of the West maybe as a collective, but have, have, I think, been a little bit too pushy with other countries, assuming that they would adopt every single element. I think it's when, you know, the Chinese opened up the economy and joined the WTA, everyone was like, oh, okay, well, they're going to democratize as well now. Mm -hmm. The Chinese showed the, the ability to have a capitalistic market system, but not necessarily having the democratic values to coincide with that. So, it's and and it's like this. Everyone's like, well, Russia could should have been a democracy, even if they had been a democracy uh, in the aftermath of Yenin's government. And let's say Putin was actually well a normal person with uh, decent qualities about him and a desire a desire for democracy. That democracy would not likely have 
reflected or mirrored that of what we expect in the West. It would have been a Russian interpretation of democracy. It's never had a proper chance because of, well, said individual in power. But yeah, I, I 100% agree. We sort of assume that the models that the Western powers have developed and honed are the ones that would be adopted by everybody. And it's like, well, no, they can be taken and they can be amended to befit the cultural norms, values, customs, whatever it is, um, of the respective country and, and, and people. So no, I, I, Very I well agree. No, yeah. I, 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 I it's, it's something I reflect on often enough that the Russian country is sort of inherently going to be a democracy. It's, it's too different than the West and it's not right to sort of try and put it in the same box. But anyway, that's, that's my little uh, contribution right, to right, this no. discussion. Um, Concerning the United Nations, the Indians' reluctance to take a more explicit position in condemning Russia and, and actually not really calling either Russia or Ukraine out by name, but simply just saying, you know, we, we call for an end to hostilities. Very, very diplomatic language, very, very non-committal language. Uh, I'm curious what the, what the perception is from, a, from the Indian domestic perspective of India in the multilateral scene uh, and, and how much of an influence... Uh, there is or, or disconnect or divergence between the two because it's something that I hear quite a lot from the Russian side that there's quite a big distinction between uh, the, the the domestic Russian policymakers and the diplomats in New York. So I was wondering if you could take us through a little bit of that based on on, on any any information and perspectives you've you've heard. And sure, yeah, I think from my perspective, one of the more interesting bits there has to do with how Indian diplomats have. Uh, repeatedly explained to me and to other audiences that their position on the Ukraine war uh, has actually shifted and that if you take a look at their statements, you will see that they have um, modulated and, and uh, shifted the tone in their statements as the war has gone on, that they have actually uh, taken steps that they consider to be significant which they would suggest are more critical of Russia's invasion, even though they have never actually voted significantly differently, that the the tone and tenor of their comments has changed. Now, you know, for for most of the rest of us, we look at their statements and it's really difficult to figure out what they're talking about uh, in terms of criticism. Bottom line, we tend to say, you know, what's your vote? And if you abstain from a vote, uh, then that suggests that um, you know that's where you bottom line come out. Whatever your your accompanying statement was, um, we don't usually care so much as what the, what the actual vote was. Um, but Indian diplomats try to make these minor parsing of words and language something more significant. At least that's the way they, they talk to, to the United States, to, to think tankers and academics like me, and presumably to their diplomatic counterparts. I think in terms of the broader public uh, view of this war in India, um, one of the things that's actually quite interesting is that I think there's actually a fair amount of uh, Russian propaganda in the Indian uh, political system. I think the Russians have done a reasonably good job of, of making their case. Um, we r routinely will see sort of Indian commentators voice concern about how, you know, effectively this war was brought on not by Russia, but by NATO, uh, was the consequence of overreach by um, the United States and, and NATO allies, and that Russia was only acting to preserve a certain sphere of influence that, 
you know, we should have anticipated it would do anyway. You know, obviously we hear some of these similar lines here in the United States too, but that's picked up regularly in India. Uh, in addition to that, that it's sort of turned around and points made like, well, would the United States put up with this kind of outside influence uh, say in Mexico or in Canada, of course not. So how can we expect Russia um, to do differently? So definitely picking up on on those lines, and then coming back to some of the points we were talking about earlier. You know, uh, lines like, well, if the United States is really just such a defender of democracy against autocracy, then how is it that the United States walked away from Afghanistan and left that? fledgling democracy to its fate. This is the same Biden administration now that is talking about supporting a democracy, left that democracy to be uh, destroyed by the Taliban. And of course, for India, uh, what happens in Afghanistan is actually a lot closer to home than what happens in Ukraine. So these are also powerful arguments, critical arguments, kind of whataboutism style arguments uh, that tend to be made in the Indian public debate. Um, which lead many Indians to basically say, well, you know, it's fine. We'll stay out of this one. Uh, that is Ukraine. Uh, this is not so much our concern and everybody's at fault. So why should we get involved? Very fascinating. It's uh, for the time that I was working with Crisis Group, I was working on the UN team and uh, it was around the time that the Indians joined the Security Council. And it quickly became apparent that they had, you know, quite a quite a clear agenda, but also a broad one that they wanted to sort of amend as as time went on, and they've taken the the times that they've been the president of the council very seriously, uh, and it stems back to I think that this fact that India deserves a permanent seat on the council. But then one begins to wonder how can you have India permanently on the council and not completely uh, antagonise or alienate or just have a negative reaction from the Pakistanis? Clearly, so I mean, UN reformation is is something that we've talked about uh, in in other discussions as well. But um, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. All right, so we're going to head over to some audience questions, uh, and the first one I'd like to go to is Miriam. Miriam, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. So I was wondering what actually can be done right now by West to um, to let's say by West so called to bring closer India and to you know, to maybe fix some of the problems from the past so India can be more on the side of uh, of Ukraine to bring uh, Indians' attention closer. You know, I think uh, I mentioned a bit about this earlier. U.S. officials uh, and others, probably the French uh, and, and a few other countries in Western Europe, have really focused on this what they perceive as the root of India's problem and part a uh, big part of why India is not siding with Ukraine more and is reluctant to criticize Russia. And that has to do with where India gets its defense equipment, where it gets its arms. Uh, and, and it's um, including some really important things like fighter jets and, and artillery and tanks and so on. And so a big part of what the United States is doing uh, as it looks at, at India and as it's tries to meet with Indian leaders and so on, is to say, hey, what can we do to ease your transition away from Russian-built equipment so that you'll buy equipment from others? And if you do that, then your security concerns, say, against China will be better met, uh, and you won't have to have uh, such a good relationship with Russia. You won't be worried about antagonizing them. So, um, you know, the latest rumors are that the United States is trying to sweeten the pot 
by offering literally hundreds of millions of dollars to help India shift its uh, buying away from Russian equipment and and to see uh, alternatives in the United States. Now, I think the problem here is still that even if India jumps uh, 100% in this direction, and I don't expect that they will, but even if they did, it'd take a long time before India could really wean itself away from some of the most important weapons that it has in its arsenal that have come from Russia. You know, one example of this is uh, air defense systems. Uh, India is in the process of acquiring S-400 Russian-manufactured air defense systems uh, that India sees as really important uh, to its security with respect to both Pakistan and China. You know, there aren't easy alternatives to those, uh, and India is already in the process of deploying those. So how it would sort of, it can't really turn on a dime uh, and shift and start buying something else right away. So, you know, this is like one of those, you wish you could, you could move quickly, and yet the structure of the problem, sort of the military pipeline that's in place already, means that this is a long-term fix. Um, it's really difficult to manage. Great. Thank you for that question, Miriam. Really appreciate that. Um, and Professor, for your, for your answer, we, we, we've touched upon lots of different areas and I think it's great to bring, uh, other bits back into sort of, you know, uh, tie it all together, so to speak. Uh, next up, I would like to go to, to Tia, Taya, who's, who's got an interesting question for, for you. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Professor, for being here. I have more of a softer question. Um, I've enjoyed listening uh, to the conversation. But my question is, um, do Indians not see this invasion as morally wrong? And if they do, um, how, what's their position in relation to their government's position in relation to this war? How can they accept this position? Thank you. Increasingly... If we were able to get good polling numbers, Indians who are paying attention to international affairs would definitely see this in this war in moral terms uh, and would be inclined to to take Ukraine's side in it. However, as I mentioned a minute ago, I think a lot of that depends on what kind of news you're getting and what kind of sources you're listening to. And and if, as I suspect, although I don't have proof of this, but I you know, I've I've heard uh, that a lot of the Indian media uh, tends to have a strong, can have continuing strong Russian influence in terms of the kind of messaging they're they're getting. Um, that would obviously shift the nature of the stories that that Indians would be hearing. Um, but more important than that is, even if they believe that there's a moral wrong being committed against Ukraine. Uh, I think a lot of them would then say, yeah, but what is it that India is supposed to do about this? Um, you know, we have our own concerns, we have our own interests, and moreover, lots of other moral wrongs have been committed in the world, and yet the world doesn't always uh, stand up for those. So um, I have actually heard a number of Indians complaining that, you know, it seems so important for the world to stand up against moral wrongs in Ukraine, but much less important for the world to stand up in for moral wrongs that have been committed, uh, say, in Asia or Africa or elsewhere. Why is that? So they, they, they focus a bit more on the, what they perceive as a kind of a hypocrisy there. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't tend to buy into that, but, but I get the point, right? Like moral wrongs are being committed right now in Afghanistan, and um, the United States certainly has decided that it is no longer eager 
uh, or willing uh, to, to be engaged there. Why? So the morality argument only goes so far. And um, I think that explains a lot of India's behavior. Um, I, I, keeping on this um, on this sort of broader economic pressures, um, I think Anna, uh, who is Ukrainian actually, and was in Kiev uh, when the, uh, the when the war began, has a question concerning the sanctions and so. Hello, uh, Dan. Thank you for being here. And um, it was interesting for me to know about propaganda. I think <laughs> so. Uh, my question is a follow up to Miriam' question, actually. So you mentioned. India wants to have good relationship with Russia, apparently because uh, Russia sponsor like uh, they buying uh, weapons in Russia. But now Russia has a lot of uh, sanctions, you know, because I'm quite aware of it because uh, they weapons they use against uh, Ukraine, and uh, so they will not like India will not have this kind of weapons they supposed to have just because of sanctions. So I mean, if we Uh, look at in a long-term perspective so in this way the support should be less so how 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 it goes with this sanctions thing and do they still wait for like these weapons they could not be delivered yeah this is an excellent point uh in fact this is the precisely the point that many americans including me including i have tried to make to uh to the indians which is look Uh, yes, we understand you've been buying important parts of your uh, defense supplies from Russia for many years now. And if you could, you would continue to do so for many years into the future. However, Russia is now under sanction. Uh, Russia's access to the critical inputs that are necessary to make the things that you want to buy is really in question. So you do, you know, you, India, want to buy air defense systems, but Russia may not have the ability to make those things because it won't have access to, uh, say, some of the, the computer chips or, or other inputs that it would have had before its war in Ukraine. So you, India, will be stuck in a bind because you're buying from Russia uh, and Russia won't be able to supply. Now, there, there are two answers that I've been getting or versions of, of different answers that I get from Indians. One of them is, well, let's just see. So there's some skepticism uh, in certain Indian minds about just how sanctioned Russia is going to be going forward. And I can understand this, right? So they're saying, let's not read too far into the future. Uh, perhaps this war will somehow be resolved relatively soon. And perhaps uh, the uh, sanctions will be lifted in relatively short order. And as a consequence, we'll get back to doing business very similar to the kind of business we've been doing before the war. So, you know, they're, they're reluctant to kind of jump to some conclusion about where Russia will be a year or five years from now on the basis of a war that just started months ago. And they've certainly looked at, you know, U.S. behavior in the past and would say that we're not necessarily as committed to the long haul as uh, we say we are going to be, and that the United States often will proclaim that the world has fundamentally shifted in ways that, you know, in retrospect, maybe, maybe it hasn't. So that's one line of argument is like, let's not jump to conclusions Um, we'll see how this plays out and we'll model through. And then a related argument that I've also heard from, from Indians is, well, Russia has always come through, uh, in the past. Uh, the Russian defense manufacturers are, are highly incentivized to make sure that they actually, I mean, they have billions of dollars at stake or the equivalent, 
Um, so they have every reason to come through and deliver what we've ordered. Um, we think they'll find a way. Uh, we think that you know they'll scratch it one way or another through the black market or through other sources or sanction busting or whatever else in order to to come through and and make the deals that, that we've uh, arranged. I can't tell, honestly, uh, if the Indians I've talked to on these issues really believe what they're saying, that they are actually quite confident about Russia's ability to come through, or if they're saying that as a kind of a, well, uh, we don't have a good answer right now to your question, uh, so we'll sort of put it off with this answer. And stepping back, I, th I think this is exactly what India should be most worried about. And as I said before, one of the, the connecting points is that India is worried that in order for Russia's um, defense uh, manufacturing capability to maintain, that it'll have to turn to China for support. Well, that becomes very worrisome to India because, of course, India is buying weapons in part to arm itself against China. So if China is the essential supplier to Russia, then presumably China would have some control over who Russia sells to afterwards. And then that really puts India in a tough spot. So if you can think about India's calculations, they don't want to turn off their deals with Russia prematurely, because all that would do would throw Russia further into the arms of China and, and basically bring about the very consequence that India is most fearful of. Um, so they're playing it very delicately there. Great. Thank you very much for that, Anna. And um, an area that I think we we're, we're alluding to often, but we haven't touched upon explicitly enough yet. Another question I'd like to go to before we begin to to wind down this episode of the Global Gambit. Um, I think John Matteson has an interesting, um, an interesting different question. John. Yeah, thanks, Peter, and great, great discussion. Um, so my question uh, revolves around the uh, information technology interest of uh, India versus the U.S. and historically the U.S. has benefited immensely from the IIT grads uh, immigrating to the U.S. and helping build our big tech giants. Uh, Modi in particular, but India in general, has been very successful at developing uh, a real startup culture and some real tech powerhouses and generating lots of unicorns in, in uh, inside their their borders. And so my question is. Has there been a shift in U.S. diplomacy with India to basic, basically acknowledge that our interests are not aligned on some of these issues the way they were in the past and that the data sovereignty and the platform sovereignty that Modi and India seeks is maybe something that would be worth conceding diplomatically in order to focus on interest-based negotiation where our interests intersect much better vis-a-vis -vis the geopolitical issues you've been describing. Has that been done or is there a future for that discussion? Just by coincidence, last night I was having a conversation with somebody uh, in the think tank community who's uh, one of the projects that they're working on is to better connect sort of the, the Indian tech hub principally in Bangalore, um, with uh, American tech companies, principally in the Bay Area on the West Coast, um, to, to have some conversations to see if they can begin to bridge some of the gaps that you're describing in terms of data localization, who, who controls this, and, and maybe possibly in bringing together these two communities, uh, maybe finding a, a way forward that's a little more comfortable for both. I don't think it's exactly the way that you're describing, which is sort of a a trade-off where the United States would, in a sense, uh, accommodate Indian concerns on the technology front if we can advance our interests on the, say, security or 
more broader strategic front, I think it's actually more likely to be a, a conversation in which you know, maybe we can overcome some of the Indian concerns by, say, moderating uh, some of our our tech companies' expectations, um, but also by being a little bit more transparent and having more of these just effectively exchanges and conversations so that the Indian side understands where we think some of these technologies are headed. And maybe that'll actually shift what they think are their interests. Um, so I think that's more my understanding of where the state of the conversation is. Um, they're definitely not a meeting of the minds, but neither is there a full meeting of the minds, say, between the U.S. And, and Europeans on some of these issues. Uh, so we shouldn't expect that we're going to see things the same way. Um, but I agree with the broader point that you know there's incredible opportunity here uh, between the United States and India to, to do business in these sectors and if we don't seize these opportunities, you know, we're, we're really missing the boat. You know, that's the sense of vast opportunity, particularly um, on the economic front and then especially in these high tech sectors. That's been a big part of why so many administrations, as I mentioned much earlier in the conversation, dating back certainly to the Clinton administration, have wanted to to partner with India is that they just see it as this land of incredible opportunity. Unfortunately, some of the the devils have been in the details over the years, uh, and we haven't. Whether it's on trade or in some of these tech areas or on regulatory issues and variety of other things, we haven't really sealed the deal, and we haven't seen the kind of growth and partnership that that I think some people are expecting from the outset. Uh, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Short follow-on, if I might, Peter. Yeah, Peter, please. Okay? Yeah. So, um, your reference to uh, Modi and, uh, and and Indian general uh, concerned about uh, Russia and China cozying up too much to their disadvantage. Um, it seems as though one of the most accessible uh, means for Russia and China to collaborate as an axis is around cyberterrorism because they're both investing heavily in cyberterrorism. So what you just proposed as a, more of a collaborative effort to address the concern about data and platform sovereignty would be a much better buffer against um, that kind of collaboration. Uh, curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, agree completely. Uh, look, one of the things that, again, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned how in, in 2020, India and China had this border uh, skirmish. Um, that same year, later the summer, early the fall, there was a what appears to have been a, a major cyber attack on, on critical infrastructure and, and the power infrastructure in Mumbai, in India. And it seems like it came from China. Now, I don't know that all the details are very clear to anyone uh, precisely who was, um, who was responsible for this. But what it points to is an interest, certainly on the United States' part, in supporting India's uh, resiliency against such attacks in the future, not least because they have the potential in the midst of a of an actual military conflict, you get the cyber attacks layered on top of that, then the potential for India to be blinded in the midst of a crisis, its inability to communicate internally, potentially to um, to see what's going on along the border or, or otherwise, that becomes really dangerous really, really quickly. And so, you know, obviously India has a, an interest in defending itself, um, in building in capabilities to resist those kinds of attacks and recover from them rapidly if they do happen. That's an area of, of clear 
uh, overlapping Indian and U.S. interests. And there's actually a fair amount. You know, there are working groups on cybersecurity uh, between the U.S. and Indian governments, the appropriate agencies there. Um, and I think that that's actually expanding rather rapidly. But you're also right to connect it to the private sector because ultimately for it to be successful, it's going to have to to link in with the people who actually have the, the capabilities and the technologies um, to do this, this work effectively. So, um, yeah, I would say agree completely an area of, of considerable convergence of interest, both technological interest and um, security interest. Thanks a lot, John. Um, and thank you, Professor, for that nice bit of a deviation away from sort of the the greater power politics and um, what we've been talking about from the diplomatic and economic. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think probably to wind down for this episode, we're going to have one more question um, from Han, who I think wanted to raise a bit more specifically about the matter of the quad um, and the uh, the future of the South Asian, Southeastern Asia. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you, Dan. So uh, the leaders of the quad is due to meet uh, next week, uh, May 24th in Japan. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, since India has been in a rather diplomatic inaction uh, in the case of Russian-Ukrainian war. So I'm just wondering, like, if India is going to back down from its previous like commitment in the uh, Indo-Pacific security and things like, you know, it's meeting uh, potentially weapon shortage and also need to find a new resource of like, you know, uh, weapons, weapons importation, as well as it's facing some domestic issues uh, that caused by Ukrainian war. So I'm just curious, like, you know, is India is going to perhaps maybe taking a different stance in Quad or like changing parts of its commitments? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, and and very honestly, I don't know, uh, but I don't expect it. Uh, that is, I don't expect that we'll see India backing away from its involvement in the Quad um, because of these other things. I think that we've actually seen a kind of a, a steady acceleration and attention to the Quad, acceleration of activity and attention at senior most levels to the Quad, including from India. There's a lot of energy behind this. Um, it's truly remarkable to me. I really never expected, frankly, that the Biden administration would jump in on the quad quite as much as it has and would push it so much and then would see reciprocal responses um, from all the other members. But one of the things that that makes that possible is that the quad, uh, whereas in previous versions of it and previous attempts to build it up, certainly during the Trump administration, it was sometimes referred to as the quadrilateral security dialogue. It is now just the quad. And a lot of what they talk about is pointedly not connected to security. So their big initiative, uh, at least in their last go around, had more to do with vaccine diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific. They discussed uh, Indo-Pacific security at length. They did not uh, specifically make points about the Ukraine war in ways that were critical of Russia in deference to India's position. But they did talk about their concerns about territorial sovereignty and respect for um, other nation states, but specifically in the Indo-Pacific context. So I would expect that, you know, India's interest will be to keep the quad focused on the Indo-Pacific, to keep it uh, at least at some very general level, more about non-security issues than security issues. I think there are some others. In fact, there was a, a, a new article out just the other day by some of my colleagues at other think tanks, uh, Dhruva Jai Shankar and Tanvi Madan in, in Foreign Affairs. They're writing about 
trying to get the Quad to have a harder edge, trying to bring it a more of a military and security orientation. We'll see if India is willing to take that step. If it does, it's probably because of its continuing concerns about China and in spite of its sense um, that that may harm it um, in its relations with Russia. But, you know, let's see. Uh, we'll find out next week. Uh, other than that, I don't know. And I don't really have a preview uh, on that. I would say the one other thing that's likely to happen in the coming week as, as President Biden is in Asia is that they'll be unveiling this Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is some attempt by the Biden administration to um, fill in a gap in its economic policy in Asia that was really left wide open because the United States didn't pursue the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was negotiated um, by the Obama administration and then was dumped by the Trump administration. And so there's this huge gap in terms of U.S. government policy in Asia that has to do with our economic and trade policy. And so this is a, an effort to fill that gap. So far, I haven't heard anybody who can explain to me in any real detail what this is likely to do, what this so-called uh, IPEF, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, really is. But I think we'll know a lot more within a week. And hopefully, uh, it'll be a, a useful answer to some of the critics who say, you know, the United States is in Asia, but only as a military and security partner and sort of bossing people around, doesn't really have an economic agenda. China has a very active economic agenda, and so therefore uh, this sort of very asymmetrical involvement in the region, which often benefits China. The United States really needs a better answer than that. So we'll see if we get one uh, next week. Great. Thank you very much for that final question, Han, and looking forward to the um, events coming up in the next couple of days, weeks, but specifically also we've had a conversation looking at the past the present and also into the future further afield as well. So uh, with that, I want to thank everybody very much for listening, uh, but also participating. That's what makes this um, podcast series, The Global Gambit, a little bit different. And as a final takeaway, Professor, I'd love to hear your your main points, your, your final remarks, um, maybe about the report or anything else, um, where people can find you, engage with you on social media, that sort of thing. Yeah, one thing to note about it is I didn't write it. Uh, I mean, I helped to write it, but it was a, it was a group product uh, and a group project. And I had a number of really great colleagues, uh, including at the U.S. Institute of Peace, um, who helped pull it together. Um, but it, that means it's also a reflection of a, a wider consensus view. And it's related to this really difficult puzzle of how the United States is supposed to deal with a region, which we describe as Southern Asia, that includes India, Pakistan, and China, where all of them are nuclear armed. Increasingly, India and China and India and Pakistan are, are at odds, and we don't see them necessarily finding a way forward toward peace uh, in the near future. And just in the past couple of years, we've seen armed skirmishing in the case of India, China, and uh, airstrikes in the case of India and Pakistan across each other's borders in ways that make us really worried that there could be an escalation in their conflicts that could even go all the way up to the use of nuclear weapons. This really worries all of us. Uh, it's possible it could happen even by accident. Uh, just in early March, we saw a mistaken Indian uh, launch of a cruise missile into Pakistani territory. Um, they say it was human error, but the, this is the kind of thing that if it happened in the middle of a crisis, could really go seriously wrong. So, you know, we see a lot of problems here. 
And of course, this is happening in the in a broader context. And we've talked about this of changing geopolitical dynamics that make things even less certain. So the report then steps through a kind of a series of questions about underlying political uh, reasons for why India and Pakistan and India and China don't get along, and then goes into uh, an exploration of how they're building up their capabilities, their nuclear and related capabilities. Um, And then the last and probably most important part is it steps through policy options for the United States, things that we might be able to do that we ought to do uh, to, to try to advance prospects for peace. And if not peace, at least um, stability or, or not war uh, and not crisis in the region. And so we step through a variety of those. And these are the product, as I say, of, of a group uh, and a group debate among a variety of experts. So in that respect, I think there makes for an interesting read. And uh, it's the kind of report that I expect, say, in a year or two years from now, uh, we'll want to go back to and we'll want to update, uh, think about how things have changed and the policies that the United States may pursue uh, going forward. So I'd commend it to everyone. You can find it through uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace at usip.org. Um, you can also find me there. You can find me on Twitter. Tremendous. Thank you very much again. And indeed, the link to the report, as well as the USIP Institute itself, will be uh, in the description of the podcast when this is released, hopefully in the next few days. Um, I want to thank everybody again very much uh, for listening in. I want to pay particular uh, thanks to some of the executive producers that help produce uh, the Global Gambit, uh, such as uh, Wook Lee. Uh, if you'd like to be part of that, then you can find out how on patreon.com forward slash the Global Gambit. Uh, but otherwise, we've got some exciting guests coming up, including some more from the Atlantic Council and the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, and I look forward to discussing uh, more issues surrounding the Ukrainian conflict, uh, as well as broader geopolitical issues um, in the coming days and weeks ahead. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at the global gambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.